Well, welcome to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to say welcome to you who are here in the well and those who are upstairs uh, in the well cafe. Uh, We're delighted to have you, especially if you're here for the very first time. Doug, would you do me a favor? I forgot to bring something up here. There's a little piece of paper out there on the back. Would you go grab that for me? Otherwise, the end of the message will just flop. It'll just be like, oh, it's like a... Just, just died there. Uh, we are delighted to uh, continue our series today, Campfire. If you were here last weekend, uh, you heard Pastor Johnny uh, open up this message, uh, uh, open up this message series. And uh, if you didn't hear him, you can go online and listen to that message. I had the opportunity to hear it uh, two times last weekend and take some notes. And he did a great job of getting us started in this theme as we look at campfires and we look at community and, and how God has wired us up for relationships. We begin with a couple of key ideas today that I want to reset from what Johnny shared with you last week. And the first is that we believe that God has created us and wired us for relationship and for community. That that's actually within our DNA. We were made that way and we believe that for a couple reasons. The first reason is that we find that notion throughout the scriptures. We find this idea that God has created us for community. So if you take your Bible and you turn to page one, what you're going to find is the book of Genesis and you're going to find the story of how God brought the world into into being. And in Genesis chapter 1, what you're actually going to find there is a poem, a poem that narrates the process by which God brought the world into being. If Genesis 1 was a song, the chorus of the song would be this, God saw what he had made and God said it was good. Over and over again in Genesis 1, at the end of each day, God steps back from those things that he has brought into being and God says, man, that's good. That is good, that is beautiful, that is lovely, that is pure. God looks at creation and says, it is good. Over and over again, we find this refrain, this, this chorus to the psalm that God looks at creation and says, that is good. It isn't until Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that God finds anything in creation that he describes as not good. Genesis 2, 18 says this, uh, God looks at the world, he looks at what he's brought into being, and he sees the man that he has put into this creation, and he says it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. But, but that's not the only reason that we believe that. You don't even have to take the Bible's word for it. You can look at your own experience and your own wiring and your own heart. I, I could play that opening video for you again. And my guess is that something within you would say, I want that. I need that in my life. I have this, this desire for connectedness, for relationship, to be in relationship with, with people where, where I feel accepted and loved and cared for. We all need that. Now, some of you are wired as extroverts, which means that you want that relationship with like a thousand people, okay? Some of you are introverts. You, you would rather have that relationship with about two or three people. But, but here's the point. We all need that. We all want that. We all crave that in our life. And when it's missing, uh, there's a part of us that really hurts and longs for that. So here here are the two key ideas that, that, that Johnny shared last week. The first is that prolonged and consistent isolation degrades our spiritual health and our capacity for spiritual growth. So if you, if you read along in GPS, which is the daily devotion guide that we provide for you, you can sign up to receive that at If you read that this week, one of the things that we talked about was the difference between solitude and isolation. That one of the disciplines of, of following Jesus is 
uh, for a period of time of pulling yourself into solitude and spending time getting honest with God and letting God speak into your heart. But, but a prolonged time of isolation, isolation from life-giving and healthy relationships actually degrades our spiritual health and our capacity to grow as followers of Jesus. And so the second thought that just kind of set up this series is that the greatest opportunity for personal and spiritual growth happens within the context of community, within the context of relationships in which we feel cared for and accepted and loved and people partner with us and partner with the Spirit's work inside of us to help us become people that we never thought that we, that we could be. So that's what we're talking about in this series. That's what this series is all about. So today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, which is like right there in your Bible, okay? So so if you have your Bible, you can turn to about that page, okay, for Ephesians chapter 4. If you have your uh, a mobile device where you have your Bible, you can launch that. This is what Johnny calls the analog Bible. That's what I'm going to use today. But if you have the uh, digital version, you can certainly pull that out. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be. But I want to set this up with, with a few things. So the letter that I'm going to read to you is a letter from the Apostle Paul written to the community at Ephesus. He wrote this letter about 60 AD, so we're within three or four, gener- three or four decades uh, of the death and resurrection of, of Jesus. Uh, Paul is writing to a community of faith, people who have just uh, made this commitment to following Jesus. So, so not only is this whole notion of having faith in Jesus, of being a Christian, in its infancy stages, but Paul is writing to a group of people who are still trying to figure out this whole thing called church. They're still trying to figure out what it means to live in community, and he's addressing that in this letter. Paul had served as their pastor uh, for some time. He was now separate from them. Paul was actually in prison in Rome, writing to the church at Ephesus. So you need to know that. Here's the other thing that you need to know, and and you can't miss this, because here's the deal. You will miss everything I want to tell you today if you miss this. Okay, so all this work I've done all week long, it'll just be wasted, totally wasted, if you miss this, this big point, okay? Here's what you need to understand. Paul is writing this letter to normal human beings, you might want to write that down. Paul is writing this letter to normal human beings, okay? That, that means the people who receive this letter are people just like you and just like me. And that means that in this community, this church at Ephesus, they had some of those people. Now, you know who those people are. Those people are, are the people that we have in our own lives who make community and relationships difficult, They're the people that just take a little bit of extra care and love and patience. The people who sometimes speak before they think. The people who who hurt others' feelings. The people who who just mess everything up. So so those people that we have in our own lives, those normal people, you know, they had those at Ephesus too. And of course, they're all all someone else. They're not us ourselves, right? But, But I want you to make sure you know that, that these are normal people, okay? It wasn't like in the very beginning God was just making super, super, spiritual people, and that's the only people who are part of these communities of faith. It was a normal group of people, just like the groups of people that you're a part of. And so to that imperfect community at Ephesus, this is what Paul writes, uh, Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17, he says this, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord 
that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Now, if you're brand new to the scriptures, you just heard a word that I'm guessing you've never heard before. And that word is Gentile. He says you should not live as the Gentiles live. So what does, what does the word Gentile mean? Well, strictly speaking, in this time, Gentile was a word that Jews would use to describe those who didn't share their Jewish heritage. So anyone who had not been raised as a Jew, the Jews would refer to them as Gentiles, people who don't have the same heritage that Jews had. But the church at Ephesus, the church that Paul had founded there, was a church that was filled with Gentiles. It wasn't like the church in Jerusalem that was all Jews who had converted or, or to, to faith in, in Jesus. This was a community of Gentiles, those who previously had lived uh, as pagans, uh, dedicated to the Roman gods, who had made a transition, made a change into following Jesus, claiming Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So the community that is receiving this is actually Gentiles. But Paul says, don't live like the Gentiles. What does he mean? He means, don't live like those who haven't heard yet about Jesus. Don't live like those who haven't heard or been exposed to God's transforming love and grace present in Jesus. In other words, don't live like you don't know what you've come to know. You've come to know something. You've come to understand something about God and about his, his relationship with his creation. You have, you have understood a, a, a part of God's love and grace because of your response to Jesus. And don't live as if you've forgotten this thing that you know. Live as the people of God, the people you have been called to be, the people you have responded to. So when we see words in verse 18 like darkened and separated and ignorant and hardened, these are not words of judgment that Paul is saying about the other Gentiles. He's simply saying this, they just don't know what you know. They don't know. So don't live as if you don't know. You now know. Verse 20, he says this, That's not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so what he says is the Gentiles don't live the same way that you do because they don't know. It's not a statement of judgment. It's not a harsh critique of them. He's simply saying, you have come to know the love and grace of Jesus. And so live like you know it. Live like you understand it. Don't, don't chase after acceptance and love and all those things that we want so desperately in our life anymore because what you've come to know is they're available to you in Jesus. These things have come for you. So this, this new way of life that you have, have learned, it's, it's about putting off the old self. You don't, have, you don't have to live that way anymore. Instead, come to, to live in a new way with new attitudes, new beliefs, and new behaviors. And then Paul begins to outline what those attitudes and beliefs and behaviors are. Verse 25, he says this, Therefore, and whenever you're reading Paul, and he says the word therefore, that means wake up. So if you're sleeping right now, wake up. Therefore... Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, 
for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29, do not let any, might want to underline that one, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which basically means don't work against what God is doing in people's lives. It's an important thing to remember. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, Paul does something really subtle here. It's so subtle that you might, you might miss it. One of the ways that, that we understand what Scripture's trying to say to us and how we apply it into our lives is to ask ourselves the question, what is it not saying here? So it's sort of like when you take a multiple-choice test and you mark out those two answers that you know are wrong. You kind of increase your odds that you're going to figure out the right answer. What is Paul not saying here? Paul is not saying that the secret to happy and healthy relationships is to only develop relationships with people who know the secret to happy and healthy relationships. He's not saying that if you have anyone in your life who kind of struggles with this anger thing, or they kind of, they kind of test your patience, or they're just one of those people, just, just ignore them, just stay away from them, and, and then you'll have the happy, healthy community that you want. Paul isn't saying that. Instead, what Paul says is this. He says, this, this, whole, this whole thing here about relationships and community and what it means to be a church, it starts with you. He speaks very directly and very specifically to each individual in that community. And he says, this is your responsibility. This is how you are supposed to live because you have come to know the grace and love of Jesus. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Don't worry about those people. Don't worry about what they will do. This is about you. Get rid of all bitterness and anger and rage and and, and instead uh, replace those things with compassion and grace and patience. This is the responsibility that you bear if you're going to participate in this community. And then he finishes up this section in uh, chapter 5, the first two verses. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, because that's who you are, right? You, you've, you've heard about the love and grace of God present in Jesus. You are dearly loved children. Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here's what you have to do. You just follow God's example. You have come to understand that you are dearly loved children, and so you should walk in the way of love just as Christ loved you. This is how to build a healthy community. Now, now what's the importance of this teaching? The importance of this teaching is that many of us live with this false notion 
that this whole idea of, of building a campfire, of, of, of crafting a community in which we might find love and acceptance and real relationship, we sort of have this idea that if we could just get the right people around that campfire, everything would be good. If we could somehow filter out any of the destructive forces that sometimes hurt community and hurt relationships, if we could somehow build a wall around ourselves so that we never had to deal with those kinds of things, that then we would find the campfire, the community, the relationships that could nurture us and help us grow in grace. It's sort of like this. We, we, we look at our community and everything seems to be going along really well. But then somehow, we never expected this to happen, somehow someone sneaks into that web of relationships and, and causes some dysfunction in there and everything just goes kaput. It just falls apart because we don't know how to deal with this, with this friction and this pain that's been created. So when we find a new church and we say, man, we really like, I like my new church. Uh, the music's pretty good. The pastor keeps me awake and the kids are having a great time. I've found a place to serve. I've made some good friends. But then something happens. Someone disappoints us or something doesn't go the way that we expected it to and, and we're, we're left wondering what, what to do. It's, it's, that, it's that experience that maybe some of us have had when we get a little bit further along in the marriage and we think, man, things started out so well. I, I mean, when, when we started, he was so sensitive and always asked me how my day was and, and, and she was so attentive to my needs. But somewhere along the way, we realized that we married a human being who is just as selfish as we are and we find ourselves going, what am I going to do with this? It's that friendship that we had. It's that friendship that was so life-giving. It, it, was, it was one that we invested in over the course of time. We shared some difficult uh, experiences in our life, and we talked about those things that most burden our hearts, and, and we found something there. We found something beautiful there, but then somebody said something they shouldn't have said, or somebody said something to someone else that they shouldn't have said. And all of a sudden, there's this, there's this junk there that's been created, and we don't know how to deal with it, and we don't know what to do about it, and now we're on the outs, and we haven't talked, and, and we, don't know, we don't know how to respond. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been hurt or disappointed in a relationship? Would you raise your hand? Just keep your hands up. If your hand is not raised, how many of you are lying? All right, keep your hands up for a moment. I want you to look around the room. And you do this upstairs too. I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say, it happened to me too. All right, you can put your hands down. Now turn to your other neighbor and I want you to say, I'm sorry that happened to you. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. That doesn't make it all better. That doesn't make the pain and the hurt that you've experienced in your life go away. I wish it did. I wish it did. I wish we could just, we could just take that and, and remove that. I wish, I wish we could go back to that place when we were 10 years old, when we, when we weren't schooled as, as well as we are in the world today and had all these boundaries and walls that we've built around ourselves that keep us isolated. Some of us wish we could, but I, I can't do that for you, and you can't do that for you. But here's what you have to understand. Acceptance and trust and forgiveness 
and grace and patience and all of these things that are necessary for healthy community are not so much something that you're going to find one day as much as they are something that you must become if you want to experience community. It's something you must become. It's, it's something you must develop in your, in your own life because here, here's the principle that we're talking about today. Safe people are the ones who build safe relationships. Safe people are the ones who build safe relationships. What that means is if you find a community of people, however many people it is, if you find a community of people who are living this thing out called community, somewhere within that, that, that network of relationships, you're going to find a safe person. You're going to find a hub who has somehow brought that group of people together and keeps them together because the way in which they have developed safe relationships with the other people in that community. Followers of Jesus are called to be those hubs, those people who build safe relationships because safe people are ones who build safe relationships. Let me, let me illustrate it for you this way. Some of you know that I went to a college at, at Texas A&M. And uh, if, you are, uh, if you've lived in Texas for any length of time, um, you probably know that people like to make fun of people who, who went to Texas A&M, probably because they do things like that. They whoop when, when someone says, they get all excited, like, oh, well, one of me, you know, and we, there's, all these, <laughs> there's all these traditions that are associated with A&M, and people love to make fun of them. And here's what, from an Aggie's perspective, let me just tell you this, we're fine with that, because we write it all off as jealousy, and that's totally cool with us. <laughs> We're totally fine with that. But, but for me, my experience at AM, even though I participated in the traditions, I went to football games, I stood up, I did the yells, you know, I did all those kinds of things. My experience at AM really wasn't defined by the Aggie stuff that you might typically think of. My experience was defined by my participation in a Christian community there uh, at AM called Wesley, or the Methodist Student Center. Uh, I spent uh, almost all my time while I was at AM there at, at the student center. I worked there three out of the four years that, uh, that I was there in college. We had worship twice a week uh, there at the Wesley Foundation. We had a lunch Bible study every single day at 1230. On Tuesdays, you could get all you could eat Double Dave's pizza rolls for $2 there at the Wesley Foundation. It's part of the reason I weighed 240 pounds when I graduated from college. But uh, mo- most of the people who were active in that community, when they got up in the morning, if they lived off campus, they, or even if they lived on campus, they would come to, the, to, to Wesley to, to spend most of their days. And if they decided to go to class, they would leave class and <laughs> leave for class. And then they'd come back and they would spend the rest of their day there at, at Wesley. We, we lived in, in community, very close community. And it just so happens, kind of coincidentally, a lot of the people who were really close friends of mine in college live now in this area. Many of my closest friends today were people who were also part of that, that Christian community that we experienced in, in college. If you were to ask some of us what those years meant to us, what, what our participation in that community meant to us, how it formed and shaped us, my guess is that you'd have to sit down for a while. Because we would talk about how meaningful that was and how special that community was during those really formative years of our life. And, and if you heard us talk about that, uh, you, you might be tempted to believe that what made that community great was there was just lots of great and awesome people. I mean, it was just all rainbows and butterflies and, and just a great, great group of people. And nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> 
Nothing could be further from the truth. We, we made a mess of all sorts of things during those years. I don't know if you spent some time around college students. But if you did, you'd walk away thinking they have a lot to learn about life, a lot to learn about the world, a lot to learn about relationships, and a lot to learn about personal hygiene. I mean, that's just... That's what you would get. So, so, and we were no different. We made a mess of things. We messed up relationships. We, we, there, was, there was gossip that hurt people's feelings. There were, there were relationships that, 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 that started that kind of fell apart. You know, one, one person thought they were going to get married and they didn't. And then there's this whole group of people. I mean, it was, it was so dysfunctional. It was, it was ma- massively dysfunctional in, in many different ways. And so you look back at that and go, well, why do, we, why do we look at this like it was such a great thing? Why do we think that this was so powerful for us and, and forming us and shaping us? And I, There's lots of things that I could tell you that it kind of made that community special. But I know one of the things was that at the center of that community was a guy by the name of Max, our campus minister. And here's what you learned about Max. If, if you came a couple times to the Wesley, what you learned first is that he was a really odd guy. He's just weird. I mean, he had a weird sense of humor. Uh, you know, sometimes weird, funny people kind of attract people. So he kind of had that magnetism to him. There was just kind of, he was kind of quirky. And so you wanted to get to know Max a little bit better because he was a little bit quirky. You kind of wondered, why is this guy investing his life in college students? And, and the answer to that question that you found out really quickly was, this guy really loves Jesus. He has to, to be around these people. I mean, he really loves Jesus and he loves students. And his life is about these two passions. His life is about loving Jesus and loving students and connecting these two things together. And and he wasn't a a perfect pastor. He wasn't a perfect person. Still isn't today. But here's what I learned. I learned that I could trust him. And I learned that during some of the most formative years of my life, when I was just trying to figure out who I am and what I was going to do and, and, and whether or not I was going to ask that cute brunette to marry me, you know, uh, during those times, I learned that I could trust him. I learned that he was safe. I learned that I could tell him anything and he would still love me. And he was sold out to my future and to what he believed God was doing in my life. And other people who were in that, that, that community, they, they experienced that same relationship with him. And so even though we may have wanted to kill one another, we kept coming back. Because there was a hub. There, were, there was someone at the center of this community who was teaching us and modeling for us what it meant to love and accept and forgive and trust and to grow. Safe people build safe relationships. So this week, I want to ask you to do something that you probably don't want to do. I want to ask you to wrestle with a question that you would probably prefer to avoid. And that question is this, are you a safe person? Are you a safe person? Or do I face an increased risk in developing a relationship with you? Are you a safe person or are you a dangerous person? And maybe if you really have the courage, you could ask some people in your life, am I a safe person? Or is there a danger in developing a relationship with me? 
Because safe people build safe relationships. Now, as you think about what it means to be a safe person or a dangerous person, thank you, Doug, for bringing this up here. I have these handouts for you. You don't have to write these down. It's just such wonderful questions. Here's how we might think about that. Are you someone who lifts others up or someone who may intentionally or unintentionally tear others down? Is your acceptance of others dependent on their behaving a certain way or your commitment to loving people like Jesus? Do you consistently live out grace in your relationships? Or do you struggle to practice forgiveness, reconciliation, or restoration? Do you spend more time thinking about how you can help others or how others can help you? Can your key relationships trust you with those things that most burden their hearts? Are you a safe person? Or are you a dangerous person? Are you someone who can serve as a, as a hub for a community? Someone who can model for others what it means to live in, in healthy, imperfect community? Or is there a danger in developing a relationship with you? Because followers of Jesus are the ones who are called to be those hubs. Those ones who in their web of relationships, the people that they share life with, they are modeling what it means to live according to this thing that we now know that the love and grace of God is available for us in Jesus. This is, what, this is what Paul says. It's very clear, very direct, hard to understand sometimes how we, how we might do it, but this is the very simple instructions. He says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. Are you a safe person? Are you a dangerous person? Do you have the capacity to model for others what it looks like to live in healthy relationship? That is your responsibility if you're a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess to you that we would much rather talk about those people than to look at our own life. We confess to you that we often want to hold others accountable for things that we would too easily excuse in ourselves. And so we ask your forgiveness for that first. And we pray that you would help us to, to look at our own lives. and to ask you how we might be better. Maybe it's just a spirit of encouragement, Lord. Maybe, maybe this week what we might change is to just smile and see, see more to life than maybe we usually do. More in others than we might usually see. Whatever it might be, Lord, speak to us today. And help us to understand how we might grow and be better at building relationships that reflect the relationship that we have with you. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.